Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, I am your host on this wonderful podcast. And what happens here, one of my writers, in this case, Danny. Thank you, Danny, has written me a script. I've never read it before. We're going to try and decode today Canadian Whispers, The Vanishing Village of Anjakuni Lake. And I was almost going to read this entire script as Angakuni, but then I looked up the pronunciation because I'm like, why well, is the place we're talking about? I should probably look it up. Anjakuni Lake. There we go. Uh, the format of this show, if you're new here, is I've never read this before. It's, uh, we're gonna read it together, dear audience. It's gonna be fun. If one villager suddenly vanished into thin air, you might consider it to be a bit careless. But when the entire population of a village disappears overnight without explanation, it begins to sound a little bit suspicious. Yet legend has it that this is exactly what happened to the limit to the Inuit population of the village of Anjakuni in Canada in 1930. It's a story that has taken some unusual twists and turns over the better past of a part of a century. After the initial 1930 report, the story was largely forgotten for a couple of decades until it resurfaced and gradually evolved into something very different. Yo. If an entire village of people disappears, like, I don't know how many people are in this village, but people are going to pay attention to that. While skeptics have largely dismissed the whole thing as an entirely fictional urban myth with zero basis in reality, <laughs> that sounds like me, uh, a fairly recent discovery has shed intriguing new light on the original source. Okay. I mean, with all of these things, usually it's when something happens a really long time ago and then there's it's not completely made up usually there's some sort of weird like, little kernel of truth in there and then the story like just gets out of control from there as people retell it and add all sorts of shit to it and then aliens and the illuminati get involved and then there's a conspiracy and before you know it you you know alex jones is talking about it and it seems that even the Royal Canadian Mounted Police have gotten a little confused over the part they played in the investigation as they made an embarrassing slip-up when attempting to completely debunk the curious myths swirling around the icy landscape of the vanishing village of Anjakuni Lake. The lake is located deep in the Kivalik region of Nunavut, one of the most northern territories in Canada and one of the most sparsely populated areas on Earth. Sounds nice. <laughs> The lake is apparently an excellent fishing spot, which might be one of the reasons why an Inuit group is said to have set up a community nearby in a new village which they named after the lake. The nice thing about this community is that unlike, say, almost every village I've ever visited in the UK, the locals were actually quite welcoming to tourists. <laughs> I don't know, I grew up in a little village in the countryside that was quite popular with tourists. There was a little like British tea room and shit like that. It was like very, you know, typical British village. And I don't know, I felt people were quite, you know, we didn't mind the tourists. It wasn't like they were overwhelming the streets. Like my parents later moved to a, a town called Canterbury. And that in the summer 
is just overwhelmed with tourists. There's like the Canterbury Tales and shit there, and there's like a cathedral, there's the Archbishop of Canterbury. There's like, it's a much bigger place than where I grew up. And it's just like there, I could see why people would be annoyed at the tourists, because there's a lot of them. But when there's only a few, you're just like, eh, it's okay, it's nice, look, look, people with funny accents. <laughs> Usually Americans. Not that you'd get many tourists out there in the middle of bloody nowhere, of course. Well, that's why they're nice to them. It's like, if there's just a few tourists, you're like, oh, it's nice. Like, I live in Prague. And the center of Prague is just full of tourists. You're like, this is miserable, and I just don't go there. Like, a friend of mine was like, do you want to go out for dinner? And he's like, yeah, okay, we'll go here. And it's like this restaurant in the center of town. And I have to say, it was very nice, and there weren't many tourists there. Like, for whatever reason, he chose very well. But I'm like, it, it has been many months since I've been to this part of town. <laughs> But you apparently did get the odd fur trapper wandering through on the hunt for beaver and the community would be more than happy to accommodate them, offering a slap-up fishy meal and shelter for the night. Oh, and maybe a good drink, too. Oh, and they weren't busy fishing and attending to guests. The residents also apparently liked to make their own high-strength wood brew to help keep them warm. What is a wood brew? I didn't even realize you could make alcohol from wood. So all in all, the village of Anjakuni, which some reports suggest was inhabited by as many as 2,000 people, made quite a handy pit stop for the weary traveler, as they would be given free grub, a bed for the night, and enough wood brew to knock out a horse. I'm very curious about this wood brew. But it appeared that the hotel bar was about to run dry. We're going to kick off with the more recent version of the story of the Vanishing Village, which is the one most likely to have been told around campfires over the last 20 years, or at least circulated widely around the internet. It's worth bearing in mind that there are certainly more than a few cheeky embellishments, or, well, let's just say outright lies, in this most commonly shared version, so we'll try to pick through the bones of the story to discover which bits, if any, are true. Yeah, just what I'm saying, it's like starts with a kernel, and then it gets told around campfires forever, and then it's like Chinese whispers, the, end up, the story ends up just being insane. And it all begins with one of those fur trappers who is in for a bit of a disappointment on his latest visit to Anjakuni. Joe LaBelle was a Canadian fur trapper who was more than familiar with the friendly village he also knew that it could be a pretty spooky place drenched in legends of wood ghosts and tales of the evil spirit wendigo and the demon tongasuk but he wasn't too bothered about any of that nonsense on the freezing cold night in november of 1930 as he approached the village in full expectation of getting a warm greeting from his inuit buddies a nice bit of trout and a gallon of wood brew he's like oh i've trapped so many beavers and now i'm gonna get fucked up with the inuit <clears throat> I'm sorry, my mouth isn't working properly today. I bit myself while eating. You know when you bite your mouth, like while eating food? I did that really badly a few days ago. And then whenever I have a meal, I bite it again, and it's so sore. It's just on the inside of my lip, brushing against my teeth. And I'm like, ah, it's actually painful to record videos, but I'm going on a trip tomorrow for five days. And it's after record videos, and it hurts. <laughs> oh, boo-hoo, Simon. Life's so hard. The sense of disappointment that Joe was about to experience was similar, in a way, to the crushing anguish you experience after a good night out when all the pubs close and you're looking forward to rounding off the evening with a nice juicy doner kebab only to find that the local kebab house has been demolished. <laughs> I mean, not demolished, but that disappointment where it's like, there used to be, on uh, university, there was like a kebab van. And I remember it was always like, oh, five pounds for a kebab. Should I? Should I? And you're always like, no. And you go home with a belly full of alcohol. And you're like, ah. Oh. And I know I would regret it in the morning as well. Um, but sometimes when you really want it. I think I'd, I'd often get chips because they were cheaper. You'd be like, yeah. Let's do it. Today's gonna be the day. We're gonna do it. We're having a delicious kebab. They're gonna eat drunkenly and not even remember. And then it's closed. You're like, why, God? Why have you betrayed me? 
No, so I feel this. I feel this. And Danny too. I mean, that wouldn't have been a major problem in my hometown of Rotherham, as you would only have to stagger sideways for a few yards before you came across another kebab house. Yeah, this was in like a fairly large town, but this was the only one nearby. It would be like 10 minutes, 15 minutes walk, and then 15 minutes walk back to go to another kebab shop, and it would be like, no, 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 no. But Joe was unlikely to find an alternative option out there in the remote wilderness after discovering that his original plan for supper had gone pear-shaped, and his sense of disappointment was destined to be a little bit more profound. Joe initially grew concerned as he approached the village and found everything to be eerily quiet. A community of 2,000 people usually makes a bit of noise, not to mention the constant barking of the packs of sleigh dogs. But today, there was nothing. No laughter, no barking, not even any smoke rising from the chimneys. When he finally arrived at the village, he was dismayed to find it completely deserted, with no sign of life, either human or husky. By the shore of the lake, he found three kayaks which had been abandoned for so long that they'd been battered by wave action. Yet, he also came across a fire pit in the middle of the village which was still burning, although the food hanging over it was past its best. As Joe explored further and began having a good nosy around the deserted huts, he found evidence that the residents appeared to have left in a hurry. He found a fish storehouse which was still nicely stocked, and in it he found plenty of abandoned food and provisions and personal belongings in the huts. If the locals had suddenly decided to move out, they hadn't bothered to take anything with them. Which at this point, if he's out there in the middle of nowhere and he's like relied on this for his supplies that's a big relief that there's some food left behind because otherwise he's gonna go hungry Joe also found no sign of footprints or sleigh tracks in the snow, which you might expect to find during a recent migration of 2,000 people. Well, unless it's snowed since then, then there would be no tracks because they've been covered in snow. Joe may well have felt chilled to the bone if he wasn't already chilled to the bone. Now, I know what you're thinking, Simon. Were the sleigh dogs okay? And sadly, the answer's no. <laughs> I definitely wasn't thinking that, Daddy, but thanks for making me feel bad. I'm more concerned about the people because they're people. Oh, Simon, but what about the dogs? <laughs> Let's not go here again. I got in trouble on my other show because I was saying like that I value the life of humans over dogs. And people were like, how? How dare you? Dogs are pure. And I'm like, oh God, let's not go here. Let's just move on before I get cancelled again for not hating dogs. I just think that human life is more valuable than dog life. Jesus Christ. Who would have thought that was a controversial opinion? After deciding that he couldn't cope with it. You know who valued dog life more than human life? Fucking Hitler. After deciding that he couldn't cope with his mystery on his own, Joe decided to run all the way to the nearest telegraph office where he sent an urgent message to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for assistance in the case of the vanishing village. When the Mounties turned up, they were to unearth further disturbing, disturbing discoveries. So let's get the dogs out of the way first. The RCMP discovered that the village's entire pack of sleigh dogs had been tied to trees and left to starve to death. A slight variation on this aspect of the tale suggests that all the starved dogs were found buried of under 12 feet of snow. But either way, the vanishing villagers hadn't taken the dogs with them, which indicates that they didn't travel very far. Unless, of course, they were abducted by aliens, in which case they may have traveled very far indeed, but without the need for sleigh dogs. Yeah, 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 but they weren't. Because, uh, I mean, aliens are real. Aliens are out there, but they're not coming to Earth and abducting an entire village of people. It's just not happening. I'm sorry. After a little more digging, the Mounties came across evidence of a little more digging. Okay. <laughs> Hundreds of Inuit ancestral graves had been dug up and all of the bodies had been removed. So whoever or whatever had taken the population of the village had also decided to take all the long-dead ex-residents as well. That feels a little bit unbelievable. I'm like, okay, they can all disappear. I'm with this story so far. And now I'm like, eh, this feels like it's this this feels like an embellishment. Grave robbing might be considered a bit antisocial at the best of times, but desecrating the final resting place of the dead is downright sacrilegious to the Inuit. Also, grave robbing isn't stealing people's bodies, it's stealing the shit that's on those bodies. It's not like people are grave robbing and then they're like, cool, a corpse. They're like grave robbing so they can steal rings and necklaces and shit. 
It could have been argued that hungry wild animals were responsible for this, but the ground was frozen solid and the headstones had been stacked up into neat piles. Well, then it's not animals, is it? But it's also not a thing because I don't think this happens. If this was the work of hungry wild animals, they were particularly clever hungry wild animals with access to tools, and they liked to tidy up after themselves. On the hunt for more clues, the Mounties eventually came across another wandering fur trapper by the name of Armand Lauren, who was on the hunt for beaver with his two sons. The Mounties asked Arnard if he'd spotted any unusual activity over the last few days, and it turned out that the fur trapper had his own bizarre story to tell. He and his sons had been minding their own business and, and killing soft furry things when they all noticed a huge luminous flying object in the sky. Oh, it is aliens! I was wrong! Who would have thought? The Mounties may initially have assumed that Armand and his son had been knocking back too much wood brew and had in fact just seen a glimpse of the Northern Lights, a fairly common sight in Northern Canada. But the trapper insisted that this was definitely not the Aurora Borealis. It was a cylindrical object which appeared to take the form of a bullet before landing somewhere over the village of Andracuni. Some versions of this story suggest that the Mounties themselves now saw a strange pulsating light in the sky. So this leaves us with mystery. An entire population of 2,000 people had seemingly disappeared overnight, but they'd obviously left in a hurry, leaving behind all of their belongings and provisions and weapons whilst food was still cooking over a pit. There were no footprints, no sleigh tracks, and not the slightest sign of violence other than the desecration of the ancestral graves. That's not violence, that's just digging up graves. Which is weird, but it's not violent. And of course, they couldn't have got very far with their sleigh dogs, which were inconceivably left to starve to death, and yet it must have taken a while for the dogs to starve, but the fire pit was still burning, as if it had been abandoned quite recently. So, how did a whole village just just vanish into thin air? Beats me, they were probably all eaten by space wolves or something. Hope you enjoyed the video. No, it's not where it ends. We're not even halfway through yet. Now, maybe we're giving up a bit too early there, but the RCMP didn't seem to waste too much time on the matter before they conceded defeat, and not many others seemed too bothered about picking up the trail. Yeah, who cares about 2,000 people who have disappeared? Just seems a little bit unrealistic. It's claimed that the very first reports of the story popped up in newspapers in late 1930, most notably in an article written by Emmett E. Kelleher for the Virginia newspaper The Danville Bee, and then the vanishing village was completely forgotten until writer Frank Edwards reopened the case for his 1959 book Stranger Than Science. It was again re-examined in the 1990 book The World's Greatest UFO Mysteries by Nigel Blundell, and you can guess from the title that Nigel came to some pretty outlandish conclusions, as did the later 2006 book the Canadian UFO report by Chris Rutowski and Jeff Dittman. Yeah, these are all just like, okay, there's something mysterious, let's spin it into a story, call it fact, and we'll sell some books. It's This is how shit gets embellished and enters the popular popular conscience as something that's real, when it's not real. These are not real thick fact, uh, faction. <laughs> these are not real non-fiction books. It's the latter version of the story which has become the most widely known, and it's the one that we've largely stuck to here. But in a curious case of literary Chinese whispers, each new retelling came with some of its own additional subplots not present in the original reports, a point which we'll return to in a moment, or perhaps seven. But in the meantime, let's rattle through some of the theories that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police clearly couldn't be asked to investigate in much detail. The obvious answer is alien abduction. Oh no, why didn't the police investigate the option of alien abduction? Oh, I don't know, because they don't like wasting their time with nonsense. The aliens clearly had no interest in dogs, which is why they were left to starve, but they couldn't get enough of humans, even the ones that have been dead for years. However, let's park that UFO theory for a while on the grounds that this is decoding the unknown and the answer is never bloody alien abduction. Thank you, Danny. On a more mythological note, the vanishing village could have been the work of the Wendigo, a malevolent spirit from folklore who is imagined to stomp around the lakes and forests of Canada. Again, no. 
because it's a spirit. Spirits aren't real. Often depicted as a giant humanoid with a heart of ice, ice hearts don't work. They have to pump blood. Ice is solid. The Wendigo's party trick was to possess humans and make them feel so hungry that they'd resort to eating their mates. And apparently, you always knew when the Wendigo was lurking nearby because he stank rotten. Yeah, and also you're eating your mates. <laughs> you're like, I think there's a Wendigo nearby because I can smell him and I want to eat your flesh, Peter. Then again, it could have been the work of the sky god Tongasuk, the unofficial forest monster of Canada. <laughs> It'd be weird if Canada had an official forest monster. This character is a bit trickier to spot or smell from a distance, as nobody can decide what he looks like. He could be a bear or a one-armed man, but either way, it doesn't really matter, as he's invisible to everyone except for the Angakuk. The, mean, the medicine man of Inuit tribes. This one seems a bit more unlikely, as although he's sometimes depicted as a mischievous demon, the Angakuk view Tongasuk as a benefactor who helps to cure sickness. It's all unlikely, because none of these things are real, Danny. <laughs> However, I'm going to politely rule out both these theories for the moment, because as far as I'm aware, no missing persons case has ever been officially wrapped up with probable abduction by demonic spirits or mostly invisible bear monster. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Danny. Succinctly put. The problem we have now is that most of the more rational theories, which don't involve UFOs or sky gods, can't fully explain every aspect of the story. That's okay though. Just because something can't be fully explained doesn't mean we have to mean we have to make up answers to fully explain it. We'll just be like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> There's lots of unexplainable shit, and we're not like it's ghosts. I mean, lots of people are idiots, um, but you know, generally we'll look for rational explanations, and that's what we do here at Decoding the Unknown. And if there's not a rational explanation, we're, we're not just like oh, it's ghosts, case closed. We're like we don't know yet. Maybe we'll figure it out. That's a good way to do things. A popular suggestion is that the community just decided to embark upon a mass migration, but you'd think they'd at least take some of their food and tools and weapons with them, not to mention their sleigh dogs. That would have been more useful than just packing up their dead relatives from the ancestral graveyard, an act which the Inuit people would never have considered anyway. They could have been murdered by a rival tribe, trampled to death by a herd of angry moose. Mooses? Beasts? <laughs> <laughs> uh, or they may have fallen prey to a disease outbreak, but there was no evidence of violence or indeed a single dead body. It's been proposed that the locals could potentially have been the victims of a natural disaster such as a landslide or an avalanche while their village was intact, so that doesn't seem very likely. But that doesn't really make it, and where are all the bodies? And that doesn't really make much sense at all as the deserted village was untouched, so every single member of the community must have travelled a great distance to specifically get hit by an avalanche while leaving food simmering back home with the dogs. Yeah, it's super unlikely. At this point, I'm starting to think that abduction by aliens or the sky gods are the only plausible theories that tickle the boxes. I don't know. They left. They just left. And the other, the, the burning fire and the dogs is just all embellishment. Or they left without their dogs, for whatever reason. Of course, there's another potential answer. The whole thing was just complete bollocks from start to finish. Yes, all that. <laughs> Seems quite likely. That was the narrative being pushed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police when the story began attracting interest again following publication of that 1959 book, Stranger Than Science. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. 
If you look at the RCMP website today, you'll see the following official explanation delivered by the Mounties in 2017. The disappearance in the 1930s of an Inuit village near Lake Angakun and Jakuni is not true. An American author by the name of Frank Edwards is purported to have started this story in the book Stranger Than Science. It has become a popular piece of journalism. Journalism? Repeatedly published and referred to in books and magazines. There is no evidence to support such a story. Okay, fucking case closed then. And uh, Okay, Frank. Thanks for that. This is backed up by an earlier 1988 explanation from the RCMP historian S.W. Horrell, who had this to say about the Australian uh, to the Australian Skeptics Confederation. Many years ago, the members of the RCMP, then retired, who had served in the area at the time these events were at the time these events were purported to have happened, were asked for their comments on the story. They could not confirm it, recalled nothing like it, and were astounded that such a ridiculous tale could be believed. Our files were carefully searched. No strange craft was ever reported. No one named Joe LaBelle ever came to the RCMP in a panic about Lake Anjaguni, and the the RCMP did not send out any search parties. The only records we have on the story are copies of letters to correspondents like yourself informing the writers that the story is entirely fictitious. Okay, lockdown. Lockdown is the official historian. That sounds pretty definitive to me. It's not entirely accurate, but it sounds pretty definitive. Okay then, Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid Podcast. I've heard of the Skeptoid Podcast. Drew very similar conclusions to the RCMP in 2013. Now, all credit to Brian. He raises plenty of interesting points, which seems to challenge the credibility of the story. Yeah, I imagine Brian from the Skeptoid Podcast probably raises similar points to me, being like, come on, come on. Let's use our logical brains just a tiny bit. He points out that there's never been a shred of evidence that the, that the village of Anjakuni ever even existed. Brian also explains that the lake would have had a sheet of ice in late November, so the wave-battered kayaks would never have been battered by wave action. The community would all have been unlikely to make use of kayaks in the first place. It also seems incredibly unlikely that such a large population would have lived in such a remote area anyway. Brian initially agreed with the RCMP in his belief that the original 1930 newspaper reports never actually existed, and in all likelihood, neither did the fur trapper Joe LaBelle or the newspaper writer Emmett E. Kelleher. The whole thing, which was completely made up from scratch by Frank Edwards to help ship more, shift more copies of his 1959 book. We've seen this so many times, but I get the feeling there's a twist coming. Do you, dear listener? Because Danny said something at the beginning about the RCMP discovering something later, and I get the feeling we're getting set up for a scrap of evidence from somewhere. However, as Brian himself later conceded, he was very much mistaken on those last few points. Frank Edwards was certainly guilty of adding new elements to spice up the story for his book, but an original 1930 newspaper report does indeed exist. There we go. It turns out that fur trapper Joe LaBelle and writer Emmett E. Kelleher were both very much real people, and they may well have been a very real public report on the investigation released by the RCMP in early 1931, even though the Mounties still claim today that no such investigation or incident ever took place. Emmett E. Kelleher's report first appeared in other newspapers before a reprint landed in the Danville Bee of Virginia in November 1931. And it's this story from the Danville Bee which we very recently unearthed from the archives alongside captions and headlines describing the vanishing Eskimo tribe. This was 1931, don't forget, and the village of the dead. Oh, because Eskimo is no longer 
PC, I guess Inuit is the correct term. I'm, I, I did, I feel like I did know that. It's fascinating to see just how much of this earliest version of the story differs from the subsequent embellished retellings. The way that Emmett e. Keller reports it after he speaks to, he spoke to Joe LaBelle firsthand. The experienced fur trapper arrived in the village that day in search of shelter and lashings of woodbury from his acquaintances at the village. The report indicates that he arrived by canoe, a detail missed out in subsequent versions, which all seem to vaguely suggest that he either just wandered by on snowshoes or stepped through an enchanted cupboard or something. Incidentally, this original report is one of very few to actually get the name of Anjakuni Lake right. Frank Edwards spelled the name um, Anjakuni with a J in his 1959 book, and it's this new misspelling which was more frequently repeated in later versions. But here's the really significant change. Do you remember when we said the village boasted a population of around 2,000? Well, not so according to the original newspaper report. Joe LaBelle reckoned that the population of his favorite pit stop was in fact just 25, which is a lot less weird for 25 people to just, you know, up and leave to somewhere else, because that's just a few families. Frank Edwards had later increased it slightly to 30 for his 1959 book, but it was Nigel Blunder who later got a bit carried away and suddenly raised the population to 1,200 for his 1990 book, The World's Greatest UFO Mysteries. By the time we get to the Canadian UFO Report to 2006, the population had peaked to 2000s. In like 2030, there'll be books and there'll be like 4 million people in the city. So Joe was probably expecting a much quieter reception than we might have been led to believe, just not as quiet as the one he got. After beaching his canoe about a hundred yards away, Joe approached the village, shouting out greetings, but the only response he got was the doleful whinnying of a couple of starving husky dogs who limped feebly towards him close to death. Joe later came across an additional seven dead dogs just lying in the snow, having clearly died of starvation. This is a far cry from the entire packs of dogs who had been inexplicably tied to trees or buried under 12 feet of snow, an element which doesn't make it into the story until the 2006 Canadian UFO report. The 1930 newspaper article goes on to explain that Joe began venturing into the 25 silent tents, fearing the worst. He was half expecting to come across a collection of corpses, and was even beginning to speculate that the residents may have been murdered or the legends of the evil spirit might have some truth to them after all. It certainly looked as if no brew was going to get served up tonight. What he finally found was no sign of life or death at all. He found some personal belongings, clothes, a rifle, a greasy black iron pot, but no bodies. Joe came to the conclusion that the whole place had probably been deserted for at least 12 months. You'll note that there was no suggestion at all of food still cooking over a pit at this point, which makes it sound as if the locals weren't in quite such a hurry to leave whilst making supper and clears up the mystery of why a seemingly long deserted village with starved dogs still had a fire burning. And there's also not a single mention of kayaks, wave battered or otherwise. Joe then came across a single open grave and observed that the Khan appeared to be empty while the stones had been stacked neatly on one side. This is still a deeply puzzling sight for Joe to come across, but again it's far cry from the entire desecrated graveyard which first seems to have wormed its way into the story in Nigel Blundell's 1990 UFO book. It's exactly what I thought, it's just crazy embellishment over the decades. And not even over the decades, it's just like someone writes a book and they just decide to make up some more shit to sell some more books, in my opinion. Joe eventually popped back to the lake for a spot of fishing to feed himself and the two near-starved dogs who had been following his every step. He then decided there was nothing more that he could do here, jumped back in his canoe and continued his long quest for beaver, hoping that he might be able to pick up some more clues as to the fate of the village from other communities that he'd encounter on his travels. He didn't have much luck in that regard. 
guard, though. Most of the other villagers he came across just appeared to pin the blame for the vanishing village on Torngasuk. It's not clear whether he left plenty of fish for the two dogs or offered them a free ride to the nearest kennels. It's worth pointing out that whilst Joe was eventually able to contact the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, he certainly didn't just run all the way to the nearest telegraph office on the same day of his discovery, largely because he was in the middle of nowhere and the nearest telegraph office is likely to have been thousands of kilometers away. According to the 1930 article, the Mounties did eventually contact their own investigation but drew a complete blank. They heard tales of a mysterious 10-year-old Inuit boy who had wandered into a village around 150 kilometers away from Enjakuni and had been adopted by a local tribe even though nobody had a clue where he came from. It was almost as if he had just dropped out of the sky. They also came across an Inuit called Salmek, who had been brought to a local hospital for treatment for his frozen legs. The Mounties suspected that Salmek might know a thing or two about the disappearing village, but after getting a translator on the scene, Salmek appeared reticent to answer any questions on the matter and would only keep mumbling about the evil spirit Tongasuk. It's alleged that the Mounties resorted to trying to get him drunk in order that he might become a bit more chatty, but Salmek point-blank refused to partake in a drink as he didn't like the taste of whiskey. <laughs> They're like, okay, get him some beer. And that largely seems to conclude the how old was he <laughs> wasn't he a kid oh no that was the previous guy this was another guy and that largely seems to conclude the grand investigation by the rcmp if you're wondering what happens to the mysterious flashing light supposedly witnessed by the fur trapper armand laurent his two sons and maybe even the mounties themselves this appears nowhere in the original newspaper report it seems to be an invention first presented in the book 19 in the 1990 book the world's greatest ufo mysteries which incidentally has the audacity to present everything presented within its tatty pages as true fact despite there being no source at all for the luminous flying objects in the sky <laughs> gotta see i need a reference reverence whenever i'm reading something like generally when people write stuff for me for the first time i'll like read it over before i like read it live and if there's anything i come across and i'm like really i'll be like reverence 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 link link please i don't believe it and sometimes it's true i mean most of the time it's true and i'm like whoa holy shit that needs to be like more exclamation points um but sometimes it'll be like to some dodgy source and i'll be like that's not fact so now we're left with a mystery which isn't quite as mysterious as widely depicted whereas common versions of the story tell of a population of 2,000 people who vanished without a trace while cooking supper leaving behind everything after aliens or evil spirits had killed all their dogs and desecrated their graveyard the original newspaper report instead suggests that 25 residents were no longer at home after leaving behind a few dogs a few personal belongings and a single dug-up grave but what was the original conclusion of the rcmp after their exhaustive investigation during which they tried to get a hospital patient drunk before shrugging and giving up well, we can't be entirely sure about that. According to a 1988 book entitled John Robert Colombo's Mysterious Canada, the author claims to have seen a 1931 RCMP report which was compiled by Sergeant Jay Nelson and released to the public. As far as I can make out, nobody else has been able to confirm this, but John Robert Colombo does seem to be a much more credible and respected author and researcher than a lot of others who are just clearly making up a bit of twaddle for some UFO books. If we're to believe the report exists, Sergeant J. Nelson appears to conclude that the whole thing was a work of fiction cooked up by Joe LaBelle and writer Emmett E. Kelleher. Sergeant Nelson considered the writer to be a sensationalist journalist who was just chasing another dramatic headline to grab attention. He also noted that the writer had supposedly used new photographs to accompany his article, but these were actually lifted from the RCMP's own archive and date back to 1909. Meanwhile, although Sergeant Nelson confirmed that fur trapper Joe LaBelle's identity was genuine, he also revealed that Joe was a rookie fur trapper who was new to the area and had only very recently applied for his first trapping license so he was unlikely to be familiar with the northern territories or any supposed welcoming villages dishing out trout sandwiches 
The lack of a license is not necessarily compelling evidence in itself that Joe was new to fur trapping. He may have just been new to the concept of legal fur trapping, but Sergeant Nelson claimed that he had spoken to experienced fur trappers who confirmed that Joe was very much the new kid on the block of ice. The RCMP report apparently concluded that there was no foundation whatsoever for the hoax news story. Even if it had existed, Sergeant Nelson speculated that the disappearance of the community was nothing more mysterious than a case of seasonal abandonment common due to the nomadic nature of the Inuit. The RCMP considered the case to be closed. And honestly, fair enough. Because I think that's exactly what happened. Well, as soon as it was crushed down from 2,000 people to 25, and we're not talking about the dug-up graves and the dogs and stuff, which just seemed to be added later, it's like, okay, there were some people living there, and then they went to live somewhere else for what could be a multitude of reasons or none of this ever happened at all whilst we can't be entirely sure of the authenticity of that report we do know for certain that the original 1930 newspaper report existed and this does beg the question why the rcmp still continued to deny that it was ever published while insisting that the origins of the fake story lie in frank edwards's 1959 book that's simply not true it could be the case that the rcmp discovered evidence of alien activity or demonic shenanigans from the evil spirit tongasuk and later tried to cover their tracks and suppress any evidence in fear of whipping up panic yes that is the most likely explanation <laughs> or it could be the case that the rcmp archivists and historians were just not very good at their job and couldn't locate historical records dating back any further than about 1983. it's possible that the 1931 rcmp report is also not genuine in which case the newspaper report may simply have fabricated the rcmp's investigation along with the rest of the story i'm kind of inclined to believe that writer robert john john robert colombo discovered the report though even if he didn't appear to share it with anyone and i'm also inclined to agree with the findings of the report i suppose it's possible that a small group of inuit did indeed spend time briefly by the anjakuni lake and then decided to make a sudden move possibly motivated by fear of an attack from another tribe or space wolves which prompted them to leave the dogs behind and dig up grandpa for good luck but that doesn't really make any sense and no evidence has ever been found that a village ever existed in that area at all okay so it's most likely just all made up even the original seed was just made up by a sensationalist journalist whose story was later taken by other sensationalist journalists or what i would call fiction writers and just embellished upon until we get a ridiculous story which is just unbelievable there's something else about the original 1931 newspaper report which doesn't make any sense if joe labelle encountered two huskies who were starving to death why exactly were they still so hungry when there were another seven dogs nearby that's not how things are going to pan out in that situation oh god are they just going to eat those they're gonna eat the other dogs aren't they it seems more likely that joe would either find nine dead dogs or two living dogs with big bellies who were licking their lips while thinking about fish pudding <laughs> savage maybe there was some grain of truth in joe labelle's original story as a rookie fur trapper perhaps he was given the wrong information about the nearest hotel bar and ended up getting a bit confused when he came across a village that had been long deserted inhabited only by a few stray huskies and however small this grain of truth was it was transformed by an overexcited journalist into a sensationalist newspaper report which then kept expanding in size and preposterousness in subsequent retellings over the decades to follow still if you ever find yourself facing an invisible bear or an invisible one-armed man it's probably worth grabbing your pets and your pot noodles before you make a dash for it otherwise you're just going to end up confusing future generations for an unfathomably long time yeah but it's all the fault of the people who write the stupid books <laughs> and always be careful when taking advice from a mountie they clearly don't know their ass from their elbow and thank you that's where we end today's relatively short episode it was a fun one though wasn't it thank you for being here if you enjoy this show and you're listening to it as a podcast please do consider leaving a review that would be amazing and if you want to uh if you're watching on youtube subscribe like leave a comment and i'll see you next time
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.